very beginning of Luke's Gospel, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And there's a, as you know, there's a parallel passage to this at the beginning of the book of Acts that refers back to this passage. But uh, this is kind of a unique passage in Scripture because very rarely do the writers of Scripture talk about the process of writing. The other two synoptic Gospels are anonymous. Those writers never mention themselves. Mark begins uh, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus. But Luke begins his Gospel by talking about the process of writing. Uh, to his, probably his literary patron, um, Theophilus. Uh, He speaks directly to a single reader, and in that, he also is speaking to to a larger reading public. This is what I. Howard Marshall, in in his book, Luke, Historian and Theologian, says about that introduction. Um, Because Luke's introduction is a lot like the introduction to other history books of his time. The point in the adoption of the contemporary literary form is that Luke is claiming for his work a place in contemporary literature and thereby commending to it, it to the attention of the reader. He's confessedly writing a piece of literature, no doubt intended for a wider audience than would be found within the Christian church. In effect, therefore, he was affirming that his theme forms part of world history. In citing the writers of Gospels, the many who have undertaken to drop an account, Luke doesn't mean to imply there that other people have blown it and he's going to do it right. He's simply saying that God's been calling people to do this, and he's felt called to do the same thing that they've been called to do. Now, when I've read this, free, this passage in the past, I've, I've often read it at the beginning of journalism class, and I've talked about Luke's ideals here being the ideals of a reporter. Luke is a good journalist. He wants to get his facts straight. Uh, in what he's writing. Um, Luke is conveying the things that have, that have been fulfilled among us. God has chosen people who he calls eyewitnesses and servants of the word. They've witnessed these events. Luke has interviewed them. Luke has studied the events, and now he wants to convey to us an accurate and orderly account of what's happened. He tells Theophilus that he wants him to be confident about the things that he's learned. So that's his purpose, is to give confidence to the people who believe these things. Now, I don't know how you have pictured the process of inspiration. Uh, I get a certain picture in my mind when I read these words. It's a a man with a robe on and sandals sitting at a slanted writing desk, and he's got a quill pen and a little pot of ink, and he's writing on papyrus. And above him, in a bubble, there are some words. Now, unlike other cartoons with bubbles in them, there aren't those little circles going down from the bubble to his head because the way I see this, the way I've always seen it, these aren't Luke's words. These are words that Luke has been given by the Spirit. Now, uh, this is a place for a footnote. Okay, and uh, you're going to have a lot of faculty speaking to you this semester, so expect a lot of footnotes. Uh, first footnote, uh, I am assuming that Luke wrote this gospel. 
There's good tradition dating back to the second century that it was written by Luke, and those traditions seem to indicate that they date earlier than when they were written down. So I think it's a pretty solid tradition that Luke wrote it. But it doesn't have to be that Luke wrote it to, for the point that I'm making here. All that you have to believe is that whoever wrote this introduction takes this seriously, and that they wrote this book in the book of Acts. Uh, second footnote, I don't know how you picture, as I just said, uh, I picture inspiration in a certain way. I can't blame great, uh, great Commission publications of the PCA for that because I was raised by Baptists. But neither can I, can I pl uh, blame Power Magazine or Eggemeyer's Bible Storybook. I don't know where that picture has come from in my mind. And I don't intend here to challenge the doctrine of the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. I firmly believe that every word in the Bible is the way God intended it to be, and I think it's necessary for Christians to believe that. Our faith is based on the Bible, and so we have to believe that God inspired the writers of Scripture. But what is interesting to me about this passage is that Luke doesn't claim that. Luke doesn't say, Theophilus, you can be convinced that what I'm saying is true because a voice spoke to me and told me these words. Luke doesn't say, I had a dream, and in that dream I saw Jesus doing these things. Luke bases his confidence and wants Theophilus to base his confidence on the fact that the witnesses are reliable and that he has accurately studied what he's saying in here and is presenting to Theophilus an accurate account. Now Luke also says that his account is orderly. He's been concerned about coherence. Uh, Luke has checked his facts against world history at the time. So Luke is always telling us in the reign of a certain king in this year of that reign, Luke knows what's happening in the larger world. He's lining things up against history to make sure that these are in the right order chronologically. Luke in the book of Acts is concerned about navigation, about geography, about the sorts of winds that blow in the Mediterranean and what months of the year they blow. This is a person who has done his homework in what he's written. Um, this concern with accuracy is obviously a virtue that you and I should imitate. That's sort of my first point. Uh, we should be accurate as well. We should be reliable. We should be coherent when we write things down. At a certain point in my undergraduate career, I remember having this great revelation uh, I think from God's Spirit convicting me, that I was usually more concerned about how my words sounded than I was with whether they were true or not. <laughs> uh, now, I, I believe writing for the Gordon newspaper, the Tartan, that I did check my facts, I made sure that I wasn't saying things that weren't true, but uh, often in my academic writing I was more concerned that I had the right tone and that it was cool and that I could shift in and out of the vernacular and make things sound good for my professors, and I wasn't that concerned to check contrary opinions, to make sure that my facts were accurate. I mean, why should I pay attention to people who I disagreed with anyway? Uh, it was just a bunch of hard work, and so I took the easy way out often, and I developed a good argument, and I could go with it and get a good tone where I could plow through to the end of my essay. And in some ways, I have to confess, I'm still like that. I'm still more concerned with tone than I am with accuracy, but it's a sin that I'm aware of, Sloth, by the way, is one of the seven deadly sins, and, uh, and I fight against it. But uh, because of that tendency, I've decided to write fiction on my sabbatical. Um, it's easier to be honest when you've made up the world you're writing about. Even when you're writing fiction, though, you have to make sure that what you're writing squares with your experience of reality in the world, that your fiction isn't lying to people 
about the nature of things. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we have a faculty retreat before you people come to campus in August, and one of the speakers at our faculty retreat read to us the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and he read it in the NIV, and I don't know whether it had been a long time since I read that or whether I'd never read it in the NIV, but one verse just really jumped out at me. I was, I was shocked by it, and here's the verse. It's Ecclesiastes 12.10. The teacher searched to find just the right word, and what he wrote was upright and true. And I heard that, and I said, ah, another verse to start one of my early classes with. <laughs> uh, I think that's really an interesting statement to make, and I've always said those are three virtues that we as Christian writers should try to develop. The teacher always searched to find just the right word. I think too often you and I settle for the vague word that our culture has available for us when we're writing things. I'm really sick of people having issues and dealing with them. What does that mean? Uh, I'm sick of people engaging the cinema or engaging the culture or even worse engaging the world and I actually saw the other day engage so that sort of vagueness keeps into our writing Christians have a heart for things they have a heart for everything except pumping blood and their hearts don't pump very well because God is constantly laying things on them Uh, I'm sick of people saying that they're mindful of, but I'm even sicker of people saying that they're cognizant of things. Um, I think oftentimes the fuzziness of our spiritual lives is a function of the fuzziness of the words that we allow ourselves to describe our spiritual lives, and we don't think about them well because of the vocabulary that we use. Uh, Second, the writer of Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes, the teacher, was concerned to write what was upright. He was concerned that what he say be something that actually makes people more righteous, that it will do them good, that it will point them in the right direction. And here again, I have to judge myself. Uh, Oftentimes, like even standing here right now, am I more concerned with the effect this talk will have on you or with whether you'll be impressed with the way that I say it? Uh, Now, granted that if you say something well, it's more effective than if you say it poorly, but I don't think my heart sometimes is in the right place about that. And then the teacher um, was concerned to write what was true. And that's Luke's concern that he pointed out to us at the beginning of his Gospels. Now, speaking the truth is a really tricky thing. You and I go out and we perceive the world, we see things happening, and then we sit down and we gather together ambiguous words and the grammatical structure that our language provides for us, and we put together words in a way that we hope will create in the mind of our reader an accurate reflection of what we have in our mind, which we hope is an accurate reflection of what went on in the real world. Now, that's difficult. That's a really difficult task, and we ought to see that. And so truth, it seems to me, is a matter of intent and a matter of, of hard work that we have to put into to, to ensuring that what we say is true. And Luke says that he put that hard work into his gospel. Surprisingly, though, many Christians, unlike Luke, are careless about the things that they say about the truth of those things. We pick ideas that will reinforce what we call our worldview. We see the world, and rather than responding to it honestly, we often try to make things out of it that will reinforce our ideas about reality. In the book of Job, that's what Job accuses his friends of. 
His friends have seen what happened to him and they're wondering why would God allow this to happen to someone and so they get a theory that Job has committed some great sin. Job says it's wrong, but they continue to tell him that. And here's what Job says to them. This is an amazing statement on Job's part because Job accuses them of lying for the benefit of God and he says God will judge them for that. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show him partiality? Will you argue the case for God? Would it turn out well if he examined you? Could you deceive him as you might deceive mortals? He would surely call you to account if you secretly showed partiality. Would, you not, would not his splendor terrify you? Would not the dread of him fall on you? It's kind of amazing. Job is saying to them, God's going to judge you for, for lying in his behalf because God stands for truth. God is more concerned with our honesty than he is with the coherence of our worldview about things. Better that we frankly describe the difficult things that we see in the world in an honest way than that we try to paper them over so that it looks good for God or for Christianity. Uh, Christian writers are often reluctant to acknowledge the goodness of non-Christian people. We, we try to explain away their righteous motives because it doesn't fit with the way that we see things. I remember a few years ago, someone had written something about Bill Clinton in the bagpipe that was not only exaggerated, but out and out false. And so I wrote a letter to the editor that I intended to be a rebuke. And so I looked in the Bible to try to find passages that would, that would back up what I was saying. And I found a passage that frankly frightened me <laughs> as probably more than it did the writer. Uh, this is from Revelation 22, 14 through 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and get this, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now you and I are redeemed, justified children of God, so I don't think we need to fear being cast out of the city. But look at the company that liars are put in here, and it should make us revolted at the idea that we would stretch the truth. So this is an exhortation to the writers in the bagpipe who write political articles particularly. Don't stretch the truth. Be honest about what you say. And if it doesn't fit with your view of the world, acknowledge that. Um, when the shootings occurred a month ago today at Newtown, Connecticut, people said, why would a gracious and omnipotent God allow something this horrible to happen to innocent children? And so Christians jumped to the defense of God and said, well, it's not because God is bad, it's because we live in a secular culture that's denied him. It's because there's no prayer in the public schools. Here were Christians jumping to God's defense and speaking for, about things that frankly, they didn't know. Nobody knew why God allowed that to occur. Better that, like Job's friends at the beginning of the book, they sat on the ground with the parents at, at Newtown and mourned the loss of the children and kept their mouths shut than to try to defend God in those ways. So these are some of the things that I've learned from this passage at the beginning of Luke. Recently, though, the passage has come to mean a little bit more to me. I think, I think it might have been a year ago. I can't remember the exact circumstances. Um, as a teacher in the English department, or I should say a teacher of American language and literature, uh, is Daphne here? That was for her benefit, Daphne Haddad. Um, frequently, I am called to convince English majors that they're not wasting their time. 
uh, or to convince freshmen that if they become English majors, they won't be wasting their time. Uh, if you're going to spend the rest of your life asking people if they want fries with their hamburger, you should at least feel that you didn't waste the four years while you were here, that you were engaged in something that was worth doing. Um, so when I've tried to justify the English major, I've cited great writers who have spent their whole life in obscurity writing poetry that was only acknowledged after they died. People like Emily Dickinson and Gerard Manley Hopkins, a believer who spent all of his life writing poetry that wasn't published until 30 years after his death, and yet felt called of God to engage in that activity. Uh, or I've cited other Christian writers who were published, like Flannery O'Connor or T.S. Eliot, uh, people who serve God in writing literature. Only recently did I realize that I had ignored the best argument possible for why writing is important, and that is the writers of Scripture. Once again, I think it was a sort of a false idea of inspiration, that somehow inspiration didn't involve perspiration, that these people somehow had the words handed to them and that they didn't work hard. But it seems to me that the writers of Scripture uh, our brothers and sisters in this regard, and our patron saints. Luke has shared with us paper and pen and ink. The, the written word of God, like the living word of God, is both fully divine and fully human. So he has shared with us paper and pen and ink. Now this is a place where I should resist a footnote, but I'm going to throw one in because it's a teaching moment. Uh, I think this is a good example of the difference between a synecdoche and a metonymy. Yeah. Um, a synecdoche is when you use a part of something to represent the whole of it. And so when you say paper and pen and ink and you mean to represent the whole process of writing, that's a synecdoche. But as I was writing this, I realized that I was typing it on keys on an electronic device, that there was no paper, there was no pen, and there was no ink. So that is a synecdoche that has become a metonymy, a closely, closely related image meant to stand for something rather than a part standing for the whole. We do the same thing when we talk about film or reels, talking about the cinema. These are things that no longer apply because everything is digital now. So there's my interruption teaching moment from an English professor. Um, uh, the scriptures are fully human as well as fully divine, and I think it's a false view of inspiration to not believe that these people actually worked hard to write the way that they worked, and that God uh, in his, I, I want to say in his providence, but not in his providence, but in his special grace to us, when he wanted to reveal himself to the human race, chose great writers to reveal himself through. The persons, the people who wrote the historical books of the Bible, Genesis, Judges, 1 Samuel, the wonderful book of Ruth, the people who wrote those books had a talent for taking an oral tradition and making it written that at least equals the talent of Homer. The great lyric poets of the Bible, people like David, Deborah, Hannah, uh, who else do I have in mind here? Uh, 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 Miriam, and the Virgin Mary. These were people who had a talent for lyric poetry that is at least equal to Sappho's, and yet we acknowledge Sappho as the first great lyric poet. Um, Isaiah is at least as great a poet as Shakespeare. And I haven't even mentioned the writer of the book of Job, John the Evangelist, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he, uh, or, or Paul in his great arguments, but also in his great poetry in 1 Corinthians 13 or Philippians 2, the hymns that he includes in his, 
in his letters. Uh, these are great writers, and they're people who we should emulate. Obviously, it's important to God that these people said well what they said. Um, I think the first hymn we sung, which I'd never sung, sung before, uh, said at the end that the words of the Bible were also fine. Um, God had them write it and write it well. So, why did I never point to these writers as examples for English majors? It seems to me they are examples for English majors. They're examples for journalists as well. They're examples for those in the, in the music department who will be writing lyrics to songs someday. But also, there are examples to all of you here today because at this college, we speak and we write a lot. And you are blessed with a faculty who are concerned that you learn to communicate well. You have a history department here that's concerned about writing. You have the privilege to be edited people by people like Jay Green. That's both a privilege and a fearsome thing, as I know from recent experiences. Um, uh, we have here at Covenant the rarest of all academic species, coherent sociologists. What an amazing thing that when Matt Voss speaks up here in a few weeks, you will probably understand what he's saying. It's tremendous. Uh, there's the Writing Center, and Sarah Huffines and the people who work with her who are concerned that everyone write well across the disciplines. And in every department of this college, there are people who are concerned that you write well. Now, granted that the education department is a bit obtuse and jargon-laden, but they're coming along. <laughs> they're learning, too. Um, in 1 Corinthians... Paul speaks about the communication of the gospel. And he says, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Now, the we there, and now we think of that and we think, oh, well, Paul is speaking here about his inspiration as a writer of Scripture. But the we there is all of us who have the Spirit. It's you and I. And Paul is saying that when we speak words, we are taught by the Spirit. Now, people used to believe that that meant that Paul was given some heavenly language to write the Bible in, and then people discovered that Koine Greek is the commercial language of his day, the language that would have been spoken in the markets of Corinth and of Philippi and of commercial cities of his day. So Paul is saying there that the Spirit assisted him and will assist us in our syntax and in our diction as well, that the Spirit can inspire Christian writers. And I'd say not only when we are speaking the gospel to people, but also when we speak in other ways. Uh, those of you here who are not second language people share something with the evangelist Luke in that God has blessed you with an innate uh, uh, a knowledge from your childhood and a proficiency from your childhood in the language that it's, that it's the most important language in the world of your day. Just as Greek. Luke is probably the only person in the New Testament who was a native Greek speaker. Uh, just as Greek was the important language that the Bible was written in to reach the whole world, so English is now the most important language in the world. And I think you all should be grateful for having been given that language. Uh, often when I have freshmen in my office complaining about their abuse of the English language and their negligence in learning how to write uh, in high school, they'll say to me, well, I, I never really liked English. And my stock reply is, have you tried German? Um, 
You've been given a great gift, and I think a responsibility comes with that gift. Just as when you got your license and your parents bought you a car, it was your responsibility to know when to change the oil and how to take care of that car, Matt. Uh, <laughs> uh, so when your parents gave you the English language, I think a responsibility came with that. Did you, did you care for that language? Did you care about the way it's used and that you learned to, to drive it well in the way that you use it? Now, um, one more footnote before I come to the end of this talk. And that is that, uh, as I wrote this, and particularly as I thought about my intent in being up here, um, the usual bravado of the English professor began to melt away. And I began to realize that I too often misuse the language, that I too often make mistakes, and that I have a problem with being sure that what I say is true, that I often exaggerate that I jump to God's defense at times and say things that are unadvised. Uh, and so I, I want to say this, that, that, that Luke is our example in this, that we like Luke should check our facts, that we like Luke should strive to be honest, that we like Luke, like the teacher, should use the language well as well, uh, that we should use the language in a way that our words, uh, both here and elsewhere, are a glory to God and something that he can use and that people can benefit from. So let me pray. And then I want to ask you please not to clap. That's a bad habit that you people have gotten into and it spreads a snare for the feet of speakers. So I'd rather that you go out and do what I say than that you clap for me. Uh, I'm assuming that you would clap. I mean, maybe you wouldn't. <laughs> but, uh, let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for the gift of this language that we use. Uh, we thank you for its power and its popularity. We know that that also is a responsibility and a privilege that we will someday be judged for. And so we pray that you'll help us to use it well, that you'll help us to weigh our words, that we'll be honest, that we'll be loving in our words. All of us are on a journey toward you. All of us sin. All of us fall short. Make us more like Jesus in the way that we do these things. And I pray that you'll bless everyone here this semester in their studies as they develop their gifts and that you'll bless the faculty as they work on helping the students to develop those gifts. And I pray for this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.